Hello, and welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And we're kicking off Latinx and Hispanic Heritage Month this week. That's right. So, you heard us say Latinx and Hispanic Heritage. So, you may have heard this as Latino and Hispanic Heritage Month, but... We're saying what we're saying because Spanish traditionally has two genders for words, so it would be Latina or Latino, but the use of Latinx has grown in recent years to include people and things that can't be categorized in either of the two traditional binary categories. And now it's legit in the eyes of the Merriam-Webster Dictionary as of this month. So Yeah. So, yeah. So, don't at me. It's in a dictionary. <laughs> Um, But here in the U.S., Latinx and Hispanic Heritage Month begins on September 15th, but let's take a second to define those two words. They're often used interchangeably, but they actually are not synonyms. If you put it in the most simple terms, Latinx refers to geography while Hispanic refers to language. Latinx describes people and things that come from Latin America, so Mexico and points south in North America and then all of South America. And Hispanic describes people and things from Spanish-speaking places. Not all of Latin America speaks Spanish as a primary language, and not all Spanish-speaking places are located in Latin America. So these these two are not uh, completely synonymous. There's a cartoonist named Terry Blass who created this great comic that explains the difference between Latino and Hispanic and how each of those terms applies to his, Terry's own identity. And so we'll include that in the show notes so everyone can see it. It's a really great uh, teaching tool. It's very informative. I liked it. Yeah, and it's it's cute. It's fun. For today, uh, we're going to look at three very famous ancient societies in Latin America um, and their descendants. So these, the, the big three, the Aztecs, <laughs> the Inca, and the Maya. Um, I've heard of them. Yeah, yeah. You probably learned about them as part of one of those cradles of civilization. Um, <laughs> uh, but so we're just having a crash course today in those three um, because th- this is, you know, we got thousands of years over like tens of thousands of miles um, and millions of people. Um, So we're going to have future episodes on the dirt. So don't think that like, check, done. Um, Yeah, we did it. Yeah. (laughs) So, yep, nailed it in the bag. Let's turn off the podcast now. We did it. So Um, I think what we're going to do today is Amber is going to play the role of (laughs) person who knows things and is going to sort of teach us the the main uh, salient points for, for each culture and sort of dispel a few uh, misconceptions. And then my job this week was to pick some favorite aspects and fun facts about these incredibly complex and interesting cultures. Yeah. So there was like far, far too much to choose from. So uh, I picked some highlights and then hopefully we'll get lots and lots of cool episodes out of this in the future. Yeah. And so what we want you to be able to do at the, we're setting objectives for you, the listener. What we want you to do by the end of this episode is we want you to stop being so wrong and confusing these three (laughs) and maybe know a thing. So this is, this was our goal for writing this script. And we are now passing the baton of this, of this goal onto you, the listener. So First things first, the names of these three groups are not interchangeable. They did not really overlap in a meaningful sense. Now we'll t- 
talk about interacting but not overlapping. Um, at no point were they equivalent in terms of their government, their geographic breadth, or their social structure. And sort of like introductory broad strokes of these things, they talk about Mesoamerican culture, um, but that's really reductive. Yeah, to say it's the very least. monolithic, and these cultures were so very different. Yeah, and and also um, there will be discussions of collapse. Like you, you will find discussions of collapse. And I could hear the air quotes when you did yeah. that. Yeah, it was like the wind moving <laughs> past the microphone. Um, <laughs> but collapse is not really a productive or appropriate term. Um, it's used most commonly uh, now after um, a writer named Jared Diamond. He's the guy who wrote Guns, Germs, and Steel that your dad read and then recommended to you for like five years. Um, and then The Third Chimpanzee, which I, I tried really hard to read. Um, I did not. And then it, uh, I had some opinions about Neanderthals, that, and then I went back and looked at the book publication date, and I was like, oh, that's why. Yes. <laughs> Um, and then in 2005, he released a book called, and the first word is in all caps, so I will render it thusly, <laughs> Collapse! <laughs> Subtitle, How Societies Choose to Fail or Succeed. I was drinking coffee. That. <laughs> well, that's, that's a you problem. <laughs> I know. You, yeah. That's, that's on me. So this was... So Jared Diamond defines collapse as, quote, a drastic decrease in human population size and or political slash economic slash social complexity over a considerable area for an extended time. Hmm. Um, so that's how he defines it. And since his book was extremely popular, um, that's how many people define collapse. Um, but his work falls in the camp of something called environmental determinism. And too often in the, the lifetime of environmental determinism theory, um, that's been used to legitimate colonialism and imperialism. And we are not about that life. That's not how we do. Nope. And so now that we've hopefully established that it's important not to conflate societies across time and geography, let us continue on and talk about these three very different, very complex societies that were established a very long time ago and still exist today over the next half hour. Or, or possibly more. <laughs> yes. Let's do it. We'll see. We'll see what this edits down to. So what do people think they know about Aztecs? We think about human sacrifice. Uh -huh. um, Cortez, Hernan Cortez, and the Conquistadores. Um, and that episode from Wishbone, I'm afraid that a lot of our listeners weren't born yet. Um, so this episode, Viva Wishbone, which um, it, it definitely served as the foundation and most of the house um, in which my knowledge of uh, indigenous groups in Central America <laughs> lived. We need to begin with some distinctions. Most of what I'm going to be doing is distinctions. There's a difference between the Aztec people and the Aztec empire. And usually when Aztec is used, it describes the empire. And the empire included many, many, many ethnic groups, many identities, many languages. The word Azteca is a Nahuatl word. Um, and it means people from Aztlan, and it's the homeland, possibly mythical homeland, of the Mexica, the indigenous people that established what would eventually become the very powerful Aztec Empire. The Aztec Empire isn't here anymore, but the Aztec people are still here, although they have different names. The yeah, culture is always in flux. Yes. 
Um, and then a uh, big thing happened in 1519. Not a good thing. Not a good thing. Uh, the Spanish showed up. And uh, so upon contact with the Spanish invaders, the population was possibly literally decimated by smallpox. Um, and this is described both in Spanish and Nahuatl accounts. Uh, we actually don't know how many people are of indigenous Mexican or Mexican descent today. Um, because census data is self-reported. And so somebody would have to identify themselves as such. And mm -hmm. there are plenty of reasons, very, very good reasons, why someone would choose not to identify. Uh, because there is widespread discrimination and racism and racially motivated violence. And it was the case from the arrival of the Spanish up through independence and through to today. So today... There are an estimated 1.4 million speakers of Nahuatl dialects, um, and so the different—they're they're different languages. They might not understand each other fully mutually, but Nahuatl survives as a language in a, a large population, um, most of whom live in rural communities in central and coastal Mexico, um, because they haven't. Like historically, they they haven't had to lose their language in favor of Spanish, and so it's also something that's done very commonly in environments where there's like an external power trying to maintain control over another power is that it will discourage native languages. In 2003, though, Nahuatl and the other 63 indigenous languages of Mexico are now considered national languages. So there is there are protections and there's um, at least nominally support for learning these languages because some dialects have been lost completely. Some have very few living speakers. Um, but of that 1.4 million people, some 190,000 people in Mexico are considered monolingual, which is that is the only language they speak. Um, and the state of Guerrero has the highest national, the, the highest ratio of monolingual Nahuatl speakers. And that's calculated at 24.8% based on 2000 census figures. And that's compared to monolinguals in the other states um, in Mexico being at less than 5%. Wow. So it's a big, a big difference. But you, you can learn Nahuatl. I can. One, one can learn Nahuatl. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so uh, they, uh, we have a link of this very cool roundup of apps. So if you have a mobile device and at least a passing Wi-Fi connection, you're listening to us. Yeah, you, um, you can learn some indigenous languages from Central and South America. Um, and Nahuatl is one of them. And so you already know some Nahuatl. I know some of my favorite words are Nahuatl. Yes. Yes. Um, avocado. Um, I don't know what this next one is. Chayote. It's a squash. It's like a, you can, it's a, it's a vegetable. It looks like a light green lumpy mango. Yes. Not lumpy, but, but like yeah, slightly yeah, bulbous. Yeah. 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 Okay. I've seen that. Okay. It's a lovely, like pale green succulent color. Yep. Um, seen those. Um, chili. Yep. Uh, chocolate. 
Don't don't do that. Um, <laughs> at Laddle, we talked about that yesterday in our old news segment. And just so people know, an at Laddle is a special type of hunting spear that is uh, used with a special throwing stick. So it's uh, a really powerful hunting weapon. You can throw it harder and farther than you could just with your regular throwing arm. Yeah. Coyote is also a Nahuatl word. Mm-hmm. Peyote. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, axolotl. Yeah. Yeah, these little guys. I love them. They're so smiley. Yeah. They're like, I know they're not actually, I know they're not actually smiling and they're, I'm very much anthropomorphizing and projecting, but they're cute. They're, um, what are they? Little, little lungfish? No, they're salamanders. And the tomato. Tomato. Yep. So those are Nahuatl words. Those are all things I like confirmed except for peyote, which I haven't tried. Thus concludes me trying to make you less wrong about the Aztecs. Thanks. I feel less wrong. Big points. Aztec empire, much more than just Aztec people. Aztec people, not gone. Nope. And also not one monolithic chunk of people. Exactly. Also that. Also, Aztec language, not gone. And you can learn it. Okay. Tell us some fun fun facts. So one of the things that I wanted to highlight about the Aztecs uh, is that they were phenomenal engineers. So I don't want people thinking that because this was, you know, a, an ancient culture that they were in any way primitive. So here is a very quick and dirty rundown of some really cool Aztec engineering. So the Aztecs were originally part of a tribal collective known as the Chichimec. And these people, who would eventually become the Aztecs, uh, traveled towards southern Mexico in the early 12th century. They arrived in the Valley of Mexico around 1250 CE, but they found the land already populated by different polities. And so... For the next 75 years, the the Chichimec did the whole uh, Israelites in the desert thing, and they were kind of shunted from place to place and then forced to live where there wasn't a whole lot of farmable land. And then because the Aztecs got the last of the land that was available in the Valley of Mexico, it it wasn't great farmland, and in fact, it was the middle of a swampy lake. But that didn't prevent the Aztecs from transforming it into this vast farmable uh, land that would feed an empire eventually. Just to put that in perspective, the population of the capital city of the Aztec empire, Tenochtitlan, uh, at its height required 88 million pounds of corn per year to feed just the residents of that city, never mind the whole empire. So how did they get that from the middle of a swampy lake? They uh, produced prodigious amounts of corn, beans, and squash, and even raised animals like turkeys through the use of floating gardens known as chinampas. So chinampas were these areas of about 90 feet by 8 feet, so these big rectangles, and they staked these out in the lake, and then, so they were these big wooden stakes, and then the stakes were joined by poles creating a grid, and then this grid was intertwined with reeds and twigs and branches, and then... So it created this kind of stationary but floating platform. And then they would take this enclosure and then fill it with mud and decaying plant matter to raise it above the surface of the lake. So basically they created these uh, farmable little boxes 
all over the lake. And then they planted willow trees in order to shade but not completely block these these farm beds. And then as they grew, those willow trees helped to anchor the floating plot to the lake bed. And they used uh, they they took human waste out of the city and they used it to fertilize the their crops. So it kept the city clean and it also uh, provided nutrients for their crops. Okay, so another thing that I mean that wasn't all of Aztec engineering. <laughs> they had they had a vast city. They, they had their gardens just, and they're like, this will do. <laughs> yeah, we're good. But I also wanted to touch on a little bit of Aztec medicine that I thought was cool and also part of it that was kind of funny. So um, we have Aztec writings um, and we also have writings of the Spanish colonizers that sort of document the practices of, of the locals. And so one of the most important of these works that sheds light on Aztec herbal medicine is known as the Badanius Manuscript, which is an illustrated text from 1552 that describes the use of over 180 plants and trees in the treatment of various ailments. So some of these are a little on the on the wacko side. So for example, the prescription for, quote, pain or heat in the heart. So I don't know if that's like heartburn or like you know sadness tachycardia or like yeah you know since here i was like oh is it it's obviously like getting done it could be yeah it could be heartbreak but uh in any case uh among the ingredients for this for this cure is gold turquoise red coral and the burned heart of a stag that would cheer me up it might it uh it would be shiny and and then um, a persistent headache could be cured by making a cut on the skull with a blade made from obsidian. So shades of trepanning that yeah, we talked about. Yeah, but also, given my current headache, I think a cut on the skull with a blade made from obsidian is definitely not outside the realm of possibility at this point. I mean, it would certainly distract you from your headache. You'd be like, this other place on my head hurts. <laughs> yeah. But as far as, like, bonkers, cures... The, yeah, the Aztecs and, you know, everybody has them. So, like, yeah, Pliny is... the Elders, in Pliny the Elders' natural histories, there are just hundreds of suggestions for cures to things. And so one of my favorites is that, you have a migraine? Put a fox's testicles on your head. Strap them there. I keep them there for a while. I haven't tried that yet. Well, now, uh, like, should I should I stop can taking you get those ibuprofen over the counter? if I'm going to do that? Yeah, can you get Fox's testicles over the I'm counter? Gonna, I'm going to go down to my Walgreens and ask. And they'll be like, okay. ma'am, well, ma'am, please leave. Area woman <laughs> kicked out of, banned from Walgreens forever. <laughs> also banned from wildlife preserve. Um, so, there, But there are things in that codex that have actually been Born up by scientific research. So um, there is a substance that the Aztecs used as a painkiller called chicolote, and that is um, a plant called Argemone Mexicana, and it is a plant closely related to the opium poppy, which, as you know, uh, has analgesic properties. So opium, it's a powerful narcotic, or at least it can be if it's processed right. But also it was, it was once used to make laudanum, which is a tincture of of the opium poppy that uh, was used as a very effective painkiller. Um, the Aztecs also used the sap of the agave plant as a disinfectant and wound treatment. And 
Uh, it has been shown since by uh, scientific trials that the sap kills both Staphylococcus bacteria and E. coli bacteria. So that is definitely something that would have been useful. Okay. Well, that about covers the Aztecs. I mean, it doesn't. Not at all. <laughs> not, it scratches not the surface. The, not in the slightest. So moving on to the next in our alphabetical sequence, the <laughs> Inca. So when people think of the Inca, they think of the... <laughs> when, when you think yeah. of the Inca. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> when people think of the Inca, they think of the eponymous corn. I love, I love them large corns. I do love large corns. They think about that. They think about mummies. They think about ayahuasca. They think about quinoa. And they think about the Nazca lines. <laughs> Something that makes the Inca similar to the Aztec is that in their empire and their people, not same, same, um, and a form of the language that they spoke, is it Quechua? Quechua. Quechua. is spoken today both by those descended directly from the Inca um, and those who descended from folks conquered by them. The Inca contemporary descendants are the Inga. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Similar? Yep. Yeah. I see a similarity. Yeah. Um, and they live in southwestern Colombia. And even like and so they live there, just there. Uh, but Quechua is still spoken in a more modern form throughout all of the former empire's geographic reach. So the Quechua language family is the most widely spoken indigenous language in the Americas. So it's got somewhere in the ballpark of 8 to 10 million speakers. Wow. Uh, yeah. And 25% of the population of Peru speaks one of its dialects. Um, and you can learn it. It's also – there also are our, our, our apps for learning um, Quechua. Now, the thing about these apps is some of them require you to know Spanish first. So which is something that is – makes it really, really useful for folks that are um, trying to – uh, protect some, like trying to engage with and um, preserve some aspect of their identity and heritage. And so mm-hmm. part of uh, Latinx identity for some, for, for many people, like, I guess this is a rather contentious um, topic, like the good sort of the question of whether um, indigenous identity is part and parcel of Latinx identity, but definitely for, Many people who identify as Latinx, part of that identity is rooted also in being indigenous of this place. Yeah, I would, I mean, neither of us are particularly well placed to sort of discuss the idea of, of identity here. So, I mean, I would really love it if, if, if you are a listener of the dirt and you identify as Latinx and also as part of an indigenous culture um i'd love it if you would either tweet at us or email us um and and give us more information yeah because then we can we can use it and be more informed in, on future episodes yeah the thing that the incas are most notable for so this is the incas being the people the the inca group so mm-hmm. the thing that they were most notable for was establishing the inca empire Right. That, that, that's big. Yep. That's a big one. They are the titular Incas of the Inca Empire. <laughs> um, and so this, the heart of it was uh, the, the center was in what's now Peru. Um, and it um, up until 1438. So 
about 600 years ago. Um, up until mm-hmm. then, it was known as the Kingdom of Cusco. So its capital was where? Was it in Cusco? It was. Yes, very good. Um, yeah. So the Kingdom of Cusco decided to take that show on the road and started conquering places around it. Um, and that was up through about 1533, which isn't that long. And that's not to say that, like, that isn't impressive because the what they managed to accomplish in just a little over 100 years is bonkers. Oh, yeah. Um, like, a little under 100 years. Like, it's it's just the how fast it moved and how powerful it was. And so over the course of the Inca Empire, they used conquest and peaceful assimilation to incorporate in their empire a large portion of Western South America. And so this centered along the the Andes. So they, they followed along the, the mountain ranges. And so they would use force and then they would go into like neighboring groups and be like, you don't want that to happen, do you? And they're like, oh, no, 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 thank you. And uh, <laughs> like they're like the mob guys, like it will be a shame if your kingdom were to fall. <laughs> what a lovely kingdom like you neighbors. have here. It would be a shame if someone came in and conquered it it was a federalist system the inca that were in charge it was their empire our empire our rules and so the capital was in cusco the inca at the head and it was the so the quechua word for the inca empire was tawantinsuyu which means the four regions so guess what okay they, it was divided into quarters the quarter or region here that's the word suyu so chinche okay. suyu that was the northwest Antisuyu in the northeast, the Kuntisuyu in the southwest, and the Kula Suyu in the southeast. Possibly possibly Kuya, because I don't know Kuya. if the double L is a is a Y in this case. Yeah. Well, okay. And so the four corners of these met in Cusco. So if y'all get out there real fast, um, before June 1st, 2020, you can see what I saw at the Museum of the American Indian in Washington, D.C., um, oh, that's a good one. Oh, good it's so it's such a great museum. Uh, but they have um, an exhibition, The Great Inca Road, Engineering an Empire. And so I oh, will cool. uh, we'll put a link to this um, exhibition. But it is so cool. Like, it's a really good exhibition. And it's really in depth, like possibly like too in depth. <laughs> and I got like overwhelmed by the amount of engineering that was coming at me. Um, and also, <laughs> I got lost. Oh, it got lost on so the I got lost. I know. And then I was like, oh, I don't want to ask because somebody will make that joke. And I just, so I just wandered around. But sorry. Uh, <laughs> sorry for being predictable. <laughs> uh, but we'll include a link to that if you can't make it to um, that exhibition in person. Uh, but it's, it's really, it's really incredible. And it's like a very, um, very informative. So that's where I learned most of what I know uh, about them. And and so you see a lot about how administration and the roadways and just the efficiency of this sort of, at that point, I guess for one of a better term, multinational like, imperial endeavor to, to have this, um, this road system. And the road system made it possible to have the, the economic, the military, um, and the administrative power that they had. Um, and it also... I would also like to point out that all of this was in an extremely mountainous region, and all of this was accomplished without use of the wheel. Yeah. So that's neat. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So this is um, about 
772,000 square miles. So for our American listeners or just our geographically inclined listeners, um, that's the equivalent of California, Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas combined. It it had kind of hit the hit the skids a bit. There was um, some uprising. <laughs> there were some uprisings and there were something of a civil war taking place in the empire when the Spanish showed up. So, yeah, um, another through line of this episode. Um, so Francisco Pizarro and his his brothers had headed out from what's now Panama, and they reached Inca territory by 1526. Their empire ran through about 1533. So mm-hmm. 1526, we're running down the clock now. Um, it's the beginning of the end. Yep, and. So it was clear to them that they had reached a wealthy land with prospects of great treasure. Um, And so they went back in 1529 on another exhibition. And after that, Pizarro was... Expedition. Did I say exhibition? He did. (laughs) They're like, here is our art. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) So 1529, Pizarro traveled to Spain and received royal approval to conquer... Yeah, seriously. Um, which I like that he went all the way across the Atlantic Ocean to get permission to go back wreck somebody's land. But so July 1529, the Queen of Spain signed a charter allowing Pizarro to conquer the Incas. So, like what? Ha, what gives you the? I know that's not I know. for you. I mean, I I think I think God. I think the answer is God. Oh, manifest destiny and all that. I I think like who gives you the pa- God? I think it was God. Um, we should put a because... disclaimer before this episode. Like, get your impotent fists of rage ready, because <laughs> yeah, because wow, yeah. So uh, Pizarro was named governor, uh, governor and captain of you know basically whatever he could get his hands on in Peru. Good for him. Uh, but it was not Peru. It was New Castile. So it was Castilla Nova. They made it back to Peru in 1532. Um, and at this point, there was a war of succession happening between the sons of um, the the Incan king. Um, and so the 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 two the, the brothers were fighting, um, and they are Huascar and Arajopa. And there were uprisings in some of the newly conquered territories. And so um, the Incan Empire was spread a little thin, both like on the edges and like at the heart. Um, But also somebody else had arrived in the meantime. And that was this little gang of smallpox, influenza, typhus, and measles. Oh, wow. Um, That is is a cocktail of yuck. Yep. Yep. Researchers think that maybe what made them come so fast and so hard is that very efficient road system they had. Oh, no. Because um, otherwise, if this were just a like a rural mountainous area, it would like they would be fairly isolated. But they weren't isolated. And so and so it started in Colombia and it got there before the Spanish did. The first epidemic was smallpox. And then after that, there was a typhus outbreak in 1546. The influenza and smallpox came together in 1558. Mm. Smallpox came in 1589. 
diphtheria came in 1614, <laughs> and then the measles came in 1618. Every time one of those came, more people died. So the so the Spanish just showed up and they were like, well, huh, this place is kind of a mess. This is easy. Yeah. The number, the total population of Tawantinsuyu, so of the Inca Empire, um, mm-hmm. at its peak is uncertain. But the estimates, real, real tight estimates of 4 to 37 million. Mm. So... <laughs> Um, but most most Good estimate. most estimates fall between six and fourteen. They they kept like really excellent tight census records using quipus. Um, but so we have all this data, but nobody knew how to read it. Um, for a long time. I mean, they did, but we didn't. Um, and so because everybody who knew how to read it died, it was lost because it fell into disuse. See above. Everybody's busy dying, yeah. but we now ha- we now have a chance of knowing what all those kipus said. Hit me with some fun facts. I will do that. So this is we don't we haven't completely decoded kipus. It's not as if we now have a full translation, but um, there has been some really cool work done by this this guy Manny Madrano, who's a, a Harvard student. Was he or was at least he was an undergrad student. He was, no, and this, this that's why this child, this young person, <laughs> this young man, this exceedingly intelligent young man, he he basically has begun to decode a specific set of Inca quipus. So quipus are they're also called talking knots, um, K N O T S. So these these kipu are recording devices, as in not that they record audible sound, but they record information, and they are made from strings. And historically, they're actually used by a number of cultures, including the ancient Chinese and native Hawaiians. Not specifically kipus, but similar systems. Um, kipus are particularly used in the region of Andean South America. It usually consists of waxed thread or strings made from cotton or camelid fiber and in this case camelid it's like alpaca um and usually it the these strings are colored and spun and then uh twisted and, and braided in different ways and the cords the way that the cords are knotted together and the way that they are arranged with each other store numeric and other values often in a base 10 positional system so that's base 10 is the counting system that we use decimal system Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And a kipu could either have just a few chords or up to 2,000. They were used to do things like collect tax data, collect census records, store calendrical information, and also to record military organization. We know some of this because some of the Spanish colonizers recorded this information, but we really don't, right now, don't have a complete understanding of exactly how to decode this information. We know a lot of it is numerical and we know um, a lot of it has to do with the position of the strings, but we don't know exactly what that means. So this is where Manny Madrano's work comes in. So he was working with Harvard professor Gary Erton. Uh, he was a freshman at the time. Just a casual Harvard freshman. Yeah, he was just like, and hey, I'm not going anywhere for spring break. Do you want anybody to look at that? So the, the key to um, decoding these kipus came when Professor Erton began looking into a set of six of them from the 17th century Santa River Valley region of northwest Peru. And so, out of complete chance, 
Um, Erton happened to pick up a book one day and spot a Spanish census document from the same time, region, and period. And a lot of the numbers in that record matched the numbers in the quipus exactly in this set of six quipus. So it was clear that they had almost a Rosetta Stone for decoding some of the information in those quipus. And so this is the project that, that Manny Madrano said, hey, uh, if you want someone to look at it during spring break, I'll do it. And so Madrano noticed that the way that each chord was tied onto the quipus, so this big cluster of strings, seemed to correspond to the social status of the 132 people recorded in that Spanish census document. And the colors of the strings also appeared to be related to the people's first names. So this is information that we didn't have before. In terms of census documents recorded in quipu, the correlation between string position and also color uh, we didn't know that. And it's a huge, it doesn't seem like much, but it's a huge breakthrough. breakthrough. Um, it's the first time that anyone has shown this correlation. And it means that we actually, we have a window into Inca life from the indigenous position, other than recordings of these Spanish colonizers. It means that basically, if we can get more information by correlating documents and these quipus, the quipus can speak for themselves, which means that the Inca can speak for themselves. So that's super cool. And it's some amazing work. Yeah. Hit me with another fact. Um, this is um, a, a mellifluous a fact. Fact, 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 fact. Um, this is, yeah, this is something that I kind of, I want to show you. And so we will include, cause there's visuals and audio here. Um, and we will include all of that in our social media. This is an Inca instrument. It's these amazing pottery instruments formed from two clay jars connected by this little duct that can vary in width. And basically how they work is um, one of them is sealed with a little plug and one of them has an open pipe at the end. And um, you fill one chamber with water and then you tilt the instrument. And as water fills the chamber with the pipe, it forces air out of the pipe and it makes a noise and the shape of the pipe and the width of that duct determine the type of noise. But the thing is these instruments perfectly mimic local animal noises. So wolves and, and parrots. And I saw the title of the, of the video. It was like perfect wolf call from this. I was like, yeah, whatever. But it, it's amazing. And, and so this guy, it's this guy who I, I think he's the one who makes these traditional um, instruments and he tilts it and it's, it, it just does a wolf howl. It's like, oh, 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 it's amazing. And the parrot one does little parrot What's chirps. What's the parrot do? What's it's the parrot so do? cool. Do a parrot sound. It's like a, a series of um, chirps and whistles that I can't do. <laughs> so. Fine. Uh, we will, <laughs> well, look at the video. Fun. Those are my Inca oh, fun those facts. Those are yeah. super fun facts. Last well, one, last more. one, the Maya. What do people think they know? 2012, that time that the apocalypse didn't happen, um, and then ruins that you visit on your vacation. Um, mm-hmm. That's what people think of. Um, also, they call them the Mayans. Um, the mm, that's wrong. Um, Mayan is a language. Maya describes people, and there that's are. That's like saying. The Frenches. Oh, gosh. Yes. Yeah. Right. But not even the Frenches. Um, it would be like the Romantics because oh, yeah, the Maya yeah, yeah. That's true. are, there's, there are different 
populations in the Maya. The Maya is just sort of a a blanket term for loosely affiliated sort of ethnically and socially um, the population that um, is in a lot of Central America or has been at some point. This one's pretty cool because this is even this is even more not like the others and the others aren't like each other. So <laughs> so the Maya never became a unified empire. There was never a my there, oh, there definitely was never a Mayan empire. <laughs> that did not happen. Um, so instead, it was it was rather an interconnected web of states and chiefdoms, sort of city states, different population centers uh, that were um, involved. They were interacting. They were involved in, in in trade and sort of social mobility. And this is uh, much older. So the territory of the Maya covered about a third of Central America. Um, and the Maya were engaged in a dynamic relationship with neighboring cultures. So it wasn't just groups that kind of rolled up to Maya as a classification. They also uh, were involved in, in, in trade and perhaps conflict and definitely like cultural exchanges with the Olmecs, the Mixtex, Teotihuacan, uh, the Aztecs, eh, the Afrimid. I think it's... I think it's- Mishtex. Mishtex, Teotihuacan, the Aztecs, and others. Maya chronology also is is much older than the the other two empires that we talked about because we're not talking about an empire here. So if we were gonna talk about like Aztec or Inca chronology, it probably started much sooner. But the sort of general consensus is to like discuss when that empire started. Um, and so those are you know a few hundred years ago. Now, for the Maya, their chronology begins with the Archaic period, which is around 8,000 BCE, um, right around the time. Hey, that's old. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, at the beginning, when they started playing with plant domestication. So around 6,000 BCE is when they had kind of agricultural societies on the grow. And so Maya civilization, as it's described, um, continues through the contact period uh, when the Spanish came. And the Spanish got there in 1511 to the Yucatan. And so there's this discussion of classic Maya collapse. And so the classic Maya collapse had happened a few hundred years before, but people were still there. Like they were still around. And so this idea of what a, what the collapse looks like for the Maya is that uh, there, there appears to have been a strain on resources, which in turn put a strain on population. Cities near permanent water sources rather than uh, seasonal water sources, those got a little bigger, others got smaller. Like so something something happened and it put a strain on their resources. And also there were other polities that were trying to get in on the empire game. And so there were there were lots of things going on. Now, calling it a collapse is buying into this idea that civilization is a like an upward trajectory that you have to keep growing, keep keep getting more, you have to keep getting bigger, and you have to start taking over other places when if that's not what they're going for, it doesn't like if you if you take that 
view away from it, it's not a collapse. After the collapse is when Chichen Itza really popped off. So the most like complex and populous and cosmopolitan city happened after the collapse. What's up with that? It's almost like <laughs> collapse isn't a thing. So they held out. So the last city-state that maintained its independence before the Spanish completely took over um, the Yucatan Peninsula. Um, and there are still millions of Maya people in the Yucatan Peninsula today because Maya are still lots of people, lots of languages, lots of societies. There are lots of languages. So when we said that those 63 indigenous languages in Mexico, um, yep. some of them are Mayan. There's a website called the Endangered Languages Project, and it's a, it's a project dedicated to endangered languages all over the world, um, not just in Central America. Um, and I was looking at different different Mayan dialects, and I found one called Pocomchi, and it is spoken in Guatemala today. Um, and there's a video of folks having a conversation in Pocomchi about Pocomchi. And it's really cool. <laughs> cool. And I think I'm pretty sure that the subtitles are in English. Okay, well, we'll post yeah, that. Yeah, we'll definitely post that so you can see people speaking it and talking about why it is important to them to keep speaking um, their indigenous languages. Um, even though we mentioned before that the Aztecs had writings, uh, Wikipedia wants you to know that the only written language that we understand from Mesoamerica is Mayan. Well, I have a little bit about that. <laughs> about this Just this only, the only one, according to Wikipedia. Uh, but yeah, tell nah. me about tell me about some language. Well, it's, this is really going to be kind of short and sweet, but it's also just sort of mind-boggling because, uh, you know, our written language consists of 26 symbols that can be put together in different ways. The written language of the Maya was a little bit more like Egyptian hieroglyphs or uh, Asian sort of pictograms. It was made up of 800 glyphs or symbols, and each one of these glyphs represented a word or a syllable, and then you can combine these words or syllables together in obviously almost infinite number of ways. So as a result, in the Mayan language, there were three or four different ways to write almost every word. Yeah, I guess it's also a little bit like like Hebrew, not quite as much variation, but um, Hebrew is usually written with just consonants and not vowels. And so certain groups, uh, you have like roots, letter roots, and you have to know yeah. what those roots together mean. And then you, you sort of determine by context what the sentence means. So yeah, I, it's just like that, but way more complicated. Is that why people thought the world was going to end, but actually it was just like they just turned over the calendar? Well, I, I am going to talk a little bit about the, the Maya calendar, but um, I think, yeah, I think it was a lack of understanding on many people's parts that the calendar is cyclical. And so when the calendar mm -hmm, mm -hmm. ends, that does not mean the world ends. It simply means you start over. Well, this is a really good segue into talking about El Caracol Observatory uh, in Chichen Itza. Ah, yes. The place that um, that did really great after the collapse of Mayan civilization. That place. It's <laughs> like there wasn't a collapse. Yeah. Um, huh. Side anecdote. I have a vague memory of a PC game that I played in elementary school. And it was like an informational like Discover Books um, CD-ROM that let you sort of experience 
the some of the Mesoamerican worlds and you had to like go on these quests and do things but like you had to answer trivia questions to get farther and so one of it one of these was like this famous ancient city rhymes with chicken pizza Jeez. And the answer was chichen itza so um that's what i think of first not to my credit but um that's always what i think of first when i when i read chichen itza anyway it has gotten better but dang it could, it could get so much better, is what we're saying. Because 20 years ago, chicken pizza is what I took away from this instructional CD-ROM about Mesoamerican cultures. So we're doing our part to help with that. What little we can do, Telling we're you, trying to do it. This is the baton. We're giving it to you. You, the listener. Here you go. So El Caracol Observatory chichen itza uh astronomy as as with the aztec and and the inca as well but astronomy was incredibly important to the maya so the movement of stars and planets governed important religious events they uh helped predict agricultural seasons and were interwoven into aspects of daily life so in the city of chichen itza the maya built a massive observatory that they used among other things to plot the movements of the planet venus and this is something that wasn't done accurately in the european world until at least the 18th century there were attempts made uh throughout the renaissance and uh and later but it was really accurately done in the 18th century um with you know captain james cook's voyage that ended badly for him but in Maya mythology, Venus was thought to be the twin of the sun and an important war god. And Maya leaders used the movements of Venus to plan raids and battles. The landscape of the Yucatan is very dense with trees and scrubby brush and, and it's, it's flat. So watching the sky is, is very difficult without some way to get yourself above the canopy of, of the trees. And so the tower atop El Caracol provides unobstructed views of the skies and the surrounding landscape. This is the the part where I try to talk you through architectural designs yes. and and uh, the orientation of some of the structure structural parts of El Caracol. We are also going to include illustrations of all of this on our social media, so it'll be easier to visualize if you're actually looking at a picture of it. But there's a, a giant main staircase that leads up to the tower of El Caracol, and it faces 27.5 degrees north of west. It's out of line with the other buildings at the site, which is kind of unusual for um, the city structures. Usually everything is sort of aligned in a, in a sensible way, but it's an almost perfect match for Venus's most northerly position in the sky. And there's a diagonal formed by the northeast and southwest corners of the building that aligns perfectly with both the summer solstice sunrise and winter solstice sunset. If you climb to the top of El Caracol's main staircase, you will find a tower. It was It's decayed now, so a lot of it has fallen down. It was originally in the form of a smaller cylinder on top of a larger one, so it's a picture uh, a sort of stereotypical wedding cake. And then to gain access to that top tower, you have to walk through this narrow winding staircase, and that's where the tower gets its name because El Caracol means snail. Oh, the snail. Um, a snail. So the tower at El Caracol is damaged, but three openings survive. And uh, these three openings in the tower walls are small, narrow, and irregularly placed. So that means they're probably not meant to be normal windows. You don't build a massive tower that's an amazing feat of astronomical engineering and then make stupid windows. Um, they are actually viewing shafts. So if you looked through these windows a thousand years ago, um, because now it's not quite the same because um, 
the position of, of planets relative to us on Earth has, you know, it shifts slightly over time. But a thousand years ago, observers could have watched for Venus rising at its northern and southern extremes, as well as the equinox sunset. The three window shafts that remain in the Tower of El Caracol seem to align with various celestial events on the horizon. So why track the movements of Venus? When you see it from the Earth, Venus seems to move in a really uh, tricky fashion. It appears, it disappears, it reappears. Uh, it, it first is described as a morning star, evening star. And obviously Venus is a planet, but observers in the past uh, mistook it for an unusually bright star. So the, the name has persisted. The fact that Venus kind of disappears and then reappears uh, in relation to the horizon um, is confusing enough that the ancient Greeks actually thought of it as two different stars. And the Mayans understood that it was one celestial body, so they knew better, and they recognized that the Venus in the morning and evening positions were the same. So the rise and fall of Venus as a morning star takes 263 days. For the next 50 days, Venus disappears, and you can't see it in the sky at all. Then Venus reappears in the evening sky, where it stays for another 263-day phase before it disappears again for eight days. And then at the end of these eight days, Venus reappears in the morning and the cycle starts over. So this entire cycle, this is 584 days. It's an interval also known as the synodic period of Venus. And this, the 584 days, relates to the orbital period of the Earth, the time that it takes for us to go around the sun, in the ratio of five to eight. So skipping some math that wouldn't make for exciting podcast listening. The takeaway here is that the motions of Venus relative to our sun repeat almost exactly every eight years. So in terms of marking time spans longer than a day or a year, which we can do by the sun, this is an interval that makes total sense. This is blowing my mind. Yeah. So the Mayans were capable of, of really accurately recording the, the transit of Venus a thousand years ago. That is so cool. Yeah. Um, I have a couple of other small fun facts, which I sort of, I, I kind of want to do more about them later. So this, these are little little tasty teasers. Yeah, feed me um, some tasty teasers. One thing the Maya were really good at besides, um, well, pretty much everything and astronomy is plaster. So um, the area in the Yucatan is full of limestone. Mm -hmm. There's, it's limestone everywhere. And the Maya uh, really ec were experts at the technology of, uh, altering that limestone using uh, fire and making it into plaster. So like plaster of Paris, except that's made from gypsum. This was, there were um, plasterer guilds and, and families of plasterers that had their very specific plaster recipes. So they, they each did the, the technique in a, in a different way. And these were jealously guarded secrets. And some of these plaster recipes uh, can be recognized. So like the various buildings uh, in, in the Maya cities were, you, you can look at the, the way the plaster was made. And in some cases you can identify who made it. Now, I mean, you can't, we don't know who the people were exactly, but you can group them into, oh, that was this plaster okay. creator. That was this plaster. Well, that could be a way of, um, oh, that could be like a proxy for like networks. Yeah. And I'm sure it's been done. I didn't do any deep dive research well, into that. because but, you're saving that uh, for a future episode. Let's get plastered. Uh, yes. The last little, little tidbit is um, something that 
patron saint of this podcast, Christina Kilgrove, <laughs> Dr. Christina Kilgrove, uh, tweeted this morning and I thought it was really exciting. So there's evidence that it's also kind of a, a little bit of a bummer if you're an animal lover, but the Maya may have kept caged jaguars and they, they may have been tame. This is from a tomb in the ancient Maya city of Copan, which is in modern day Honduras. And this is, it's called the, the tomb of the cross-legged woman, which is accurate because the tomb holds the skeleton of a young woman who was cross-legged and she was surrounded by large animals. So the bones of two deer and a crocodile lay alongside her and also a complete puma skeleton was found in the tomb. And these were apparently slaughtered as part of the burial ritual. And she was buried in uh, around 435 CE. So this was published yesterday, September 12th in the journal PLOS One. So the evidence for domestication was based on evidence for the puma's diet. There is a difference between the carbon isotope content of plants that are farmed like corn and uh, agricultural plants, but but not wild plants. C4, which is a carbon-containing molecule common in agricultural plants like maize, but not found in wild plants, was found in the bones of the jaguar. Oh, so, so they found, they found GMOs. They did. They literally found genetically modified uh, traces. So this means that uh, these big cats were eating food that humans fed them, probably meat mixed with, with corn, so kitty chow. So they were likely kept in captivity. This is interesting because other bones found at the same site were rich in C3, which is a molecule common in wild plants. So this suggests that instead they ate a wild diet. So there may have been some animals kept in captivity for specifically for ritual purposes, but then um, the Maya may have also supplemented these uh, zoos, essentially, with with uh, hunted animals. Wow. So, yeah, so it's a, a really interesting um, hint of a window into the relationship between Maya and the local animals. And I, I'm not sure how I feel about domesticated as a word for these, yeah, these cats. Like, like domesticated they were, they were means captive. something a little bit. Yeah, and domesticated means something a little bit different. So uh, I'd have to, I have to actually read the paper. Um, but we can save save that for another time. Yeah. Okay. We have a shout out, and that shout out is to Lisa. Lisa, Lisa! thank you, thank you so much for subscribing at the ten dollar a month level on Patreon. Yes, you're helping us so oh, much. So much. You too can support us on Patreon. Please do so. You can become a monthly subscriber or a single time donor. Either way, we'd be so we grateful. Would be. We would be. Um, and you can find us on Patreon. Um, at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast and also right now if you want to send us a one-time donation um, or see even more reasons to become a patron on patreon uh, please check out our specific site for our goals for the the coming months um, that's the dirtpod.com slash goals and there we talk about um, a few initiatives that we're trying to uh, scoop up the money to pay for, and one of which yep. is going to the American Anthropological Association meeting. Um, that's in November, and we are working on a very special project to share with all of you. Um, and we will be sharing it where we share with you every week over on the SoundCloud, the iTunes, and the wherever else you find your podcasts. And you'll be able to see all of the images and videos that we talked about 
on this episode today, as well as all kinds of other stuff over on our Facebook page at The Dirt Podcast. Yep. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. On Instagram, we're at The Dirt Pod. And our website is thedirtpod.com. And if you are an Indigenous speaker or identify as an Indigenous member of any of these groups, or you just want to drop us a line, you can do that at thedirtpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you. We really would. Thank you so much for listening. We couldn't do this without you. We absolutely could not. And we love you very much. And we will be in your ears next week. We sure will. (laughs) Bye. Bye.